I want to give another special thanks to Waxo, our longtime sponsor of Something Positive for Positive People. I'm really pumped to be a part of this hashtag, We Need a Button campaign. And what it does is advocate that people share their healthcare stories. And it's asking patient matching sites to create a way to vet healthcare providers in terms of their LGBTQ friendliness. Medical bias affects the lives of millions of Americans each year, and not only LGBTQ Americans. And with the has the cold blue meme situation that uh, recently came up, I mean, you can see that it affects people who are living with medical conditions, um, and you can also see how that bias is, it's stigmatizing in a lot of cases as well. So just dropping that in there, but you can go check out Waxo. Uh, Wanda Sykes actually was a special guest on an episode of last week tonight with John Oliver, where the way racial and gender biases create worse health outcomes for women and people of color is what they talked about. The way these multi-layered biases compound one another, black women are in fact the most vulnerable group studied when it comes to maternal mortality. And Wanda Sykes goes over her three techniques for fighting medical bias. Number one is more bias trainings for medical professionals. Two is diverse staff in hospitals. And then number three is just patients advocating for themselves. And we're a huge component of that here at Something Positive for Positive People. We've got to advocate for ourselves. And if you want to read more stories about what goes on behind closed doors and how you can get involved, visit www.waxo.com slash we need a button welcome to something positive for positive people no i'm not gonna do that to y'all we just joked about me having to do that because there is quite a bit of an echo on my part just because of the resonance of my voice i guess but uh, welcome to the show this is where we interview people about their experiences with or being affected by sexually transmitted infections and as you know we often bring on medical, health, sexual experts, and all kinds of professionals on the show to also help us with gaining insights. And today's guest is Dr. Lex. Dr. Lex, can you introduce yourself for me? Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So my name is Dr. Lex. My pronouns are she, her, and doctor. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm also a certified sexuality educator and a certified sexuality educator supervisor through ASECT, so the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. How do you remember all those acronyms? That's why I have people introduce themselves. I don't even want to butcher it. (laughs) (laughs) They're very expensive, so we pay for them. So you should remember things you pay for and or you study and pass a really hard test for. So yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully I don't have to get to a point where I had to pay guests to be on here. And they're like, yeah, well, you're going to have to pay for the LMNOP certification. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Dr. Lex and I met on Instagram, um, stumbled across each other. We connected, found out we're both located in St. Louis. As you know, something positive for positive people is connecting people who are struggling with navigating their STI diagnosis, specifically herpes, to a therapist so that... We can help them. Um, There are a handful of people that I want to get therapy for as soon as we're able to get the funds and make the connections necessary to do so. Um, There are instances where people just do not disclose and 
and talk about you know how they want to do better but there's something they're keeping them from doing that there are people who have experienced sexual trauma and they can't move past that there are people who are completely angry about their diagnosis as well and not able to get through that these are three extreme cases that come off the top of my head right now with people who I've connected with and I really wanted to be able to do something for but I haven't been able to I wanted to bring Dr. Lex on so that we can talk a little about what that may look like for people and we've had therapists on in the past but for this episode we want to dive in a little bit deeper and touch more on the black community because I find that the people who reach out to me who are I mean we know that when you reach out to someone who um has herpes, if you're someone who has herpes, there tends to be a little bit of a deeper connection there than there is to your support system, your family, your friends, even partners sometimes. So I get people who reach out to me with some very, very deep stuff that I just don't have the letters behind my name <laughs> in order to deal with. So it would be nice to be able to make that connection. I want to talk to you specifically right now about what you deal with in terms of patients who may be dealing with any sort of sexual trauma or STI diagnosis. Let's tease that out a little bit, right? So there are people who have sexual trauma. There are people who have STI diagnoses. They don't always have to be the same. And sometimes they are the same, right? So sometimes getting the STI positive diagnosis is sexual trauma for a person. And sometimes it's not. It just depends on the person. For people who are diagnosed with whatever they're diagnosed with, oftentimes there's a grief stage. So we call it, it's a cycle of grief, right? It's feeling betrayed and angry, feeling lost, feeling unwanted. All of these things are grief. And I say grief isn't necessarily losing something. It's learning to live your life without it, right? So learning to live your life without this quote unquote clean right? That's the stigmatizing language we use. Now you're not clean. You're one of the unclean, like you're unsullied or one of the lepers on the island somewhere. So it's now I have to live my life with this kind of scarlet letter or this scarlet diagnosis. I've lost so much freedom or I've lost access to sex. I've lost access to partners. I've lost access to kiss babies. How do I continue on with this? What does this look like? I have to put myself on an island in order to keep people safe because I never want another person to feel this way because of me. And that's what I typically run into. And I've had this, I've been a therapist for just about 10 years now. So I've had this happen in people who are single, people who are married and have been married for years and got diagnosed later. And they're like, what? And did you cheat on me? Where did this come from? How did this happen? And not having all the answers that they want from doctors. And so that that trauma also becomes a shock. So once that shock wears off, then it's grief. And then we have to figure out what life looks like for them. And that sometimes means rehearsing what they want to say to a partner, when they want to disclose to a partner. Is it safe to disclose to a partner? What does it look like for med management? Do they have reaffirming doctors, right? So there are some doctors like, well, you know, you got this now, so you can't go out there and spread it. Like, Please don't get me started on doctors today. This is the wrong week. <laughs> it's not. That is the wrong week for you, huh? Uh, so, yeah. The sexual trauma and the diagnosis doesn't necessarily always go together, but they can. Okay. Now, one of the things that people struggle with is really telling another person that they have a positive diagnosis. There have been people I've spoken to who have been diagnosed for the longest and 
haven't been able to bring themselves to tell their therapist Mm -hmm. how much of a connection is there between so someone wants to do better about their mental health and this is just something that they aren't able to let out is there still a barrier if you're keeping your herpes diagnosis to yourself in fear of being stigmatized even from your therapist so i would actually put that onus on the therapist rather than the client right so i am a sexuality professional not all therapists are are trained the way i'm trained right so i get people who come from their preacher who come from a previous therapist who come from whatever circle of friends or professionals they have and are like oh we never talked about sex and i'm like so my whole second interview with you my whole second meeting is a complete sexual history So I ask about the most pleasurable times in your life sexually. I ask about when you started masturbation. I ask about the atmosphere of sexuality in your home. I ask about previous STI diagnoses, right? That is my job to be thorough in getting to know you and letting you know that this is a safe place that we can talk about these things. So with therapists and other professionals, I think it's up to us to set the tone of this is a safe place we don't stigmatize them here. Our job is to destigmatize, and I'm giving you permission to share, right? And that's the, the the first step for us: permission to share whatever it is on you. Now, do I think it can be a hindrance, specifically in relationships? Yes, because it holds a lot of angst and anxiety. And I am an avid believer that intimacy equals sharing, being vulnerable, and taking risks. So, in order to achieve true intimacy with people you care about. You have to share, you have to be vulnerable, and you have to take risk. And outside of that, it's oftentimes just shame manifesting. Keeping things to ourselves, bottling them up, cloaking yourself in different various types of ways is shame. And that typically is not our own stuff. It's stuff that we've allowed to be planted within us. And we've watered and let it grow. And now Instead of this little seed of information or this little seed of a thought, it becomes an entire tree, which develops into a forest. And now we're trying to figure out how we're going to go cut down this forest and all we got is a fork or a butter knife. Essentially what we're doing is we're taking in like a seed from childhood and over time our life experiences water it, broom it, grow Mm -hmm. it. And now when we revisit it, because having that seed doesn't serve us anymore or it's conflicting with our present life Mm -hmm. now we have to be able to do something about it so in keeping it in are we essentially going at it with a fork whereas when we express it we invite the people who can come in and help us I don't know tear down the forest I don't want to use that analogy deforestation is real (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so it takes for us to be able to express it in order to invite in energies to allow for us to be able to see that force for what it is right right exactly so i would say it it prunes back some of the stuff and then let you see the forest for the trees so you can see like this isn't an entire global thing it's this one piece right here right in front of me that i'm dealing with right now Mm -hmm. and can reduce some of that overwhelming feeling and that's what typically lands people in my office they feel overwhelmed they feel super anxious they feel not good enough And they feel unwanted. And then they're like, I need to talk to somebody about this because I don't know what to do. And it's hindering my relationships or it's hindering my work or it's hindering my ability to be a student, whatever it is. It's getting in their life way. Do you have anything on the history of stigma from uh, your sexuality training and education? 
SDIs have been around for a while and have a really dark history when it comes to black folks. And I'll actually say marginalized folks in general. What we now know is the CDC used to operate under another name. I forgot what it was, but they purposely would inject people with STIs. In Guatemala, they purposely gave syphilis or gonorrhea to prostitutes and then let the prostitutes into prisons and then would study how the disease manifested and spread in prisons and then would cure the prostitutes. Uh, they purposely gave gonorrhea to children who had what they would term back then as mental retardation, so neurodivergence of some sort, and they would put it in their eyes to see how the disease ran rampant on purpose, right? We, everybody knows about the Tuskegee yeah. studies where they gave black men syphilis and watched it over years, like didn't end until the 70s, just about. So STIs have a long history. Uh, the clap is called the clap because they used to clap men's penises to try and get out all of the discharge that would come from it. And this idea of there is this thing, there is something painful, there it was associated with prostitutes specifically. Prostitutes and semen, not, not like semen, the stuff that's expelled from a man's penis, but like semen as in people who sail on the seas, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? So that's what it was associated with. And low class, poor, dirty, ideally. So that's where some of that stigma does come from. Like low class people get this or dirty people get this. People who are clean and who have access to bathtubs and who don't use public showers don't get these types of things, right? Yeah. And then we use it as a tool of patriarchy. So only whores get STIs, right? If you're sexually promiscuous, this is why you need to be a virgin so you can remain clean so you won't get anything out there. But what we don't teach people is like chicken pox is a form of herpes. If you've ever had chicken pox, if you've ever had shingles, you have herpes in your blood. Like, it's part of the same family tree. And yet, we don't say like, ew, oh my god, you got chicken pox. Matter of fact, I'm still mad at my mama. I have a twin, and he had chicken pox. I was like, I don't want to play with him. He's itchy. That doesn't, that doesn't look comfortable, mom. I'm good. She's like, go play with your brother. It's fine. I got chicken pox twice. Twice! She set me up. So I'm still a little bit mad at her for that. But we don't, we don't cast them aside. We don't say like you're a super dirty person because you've had this one time in your life or you've had these outbreaks. Like they just exist and continue to exist and continue to have access. But we have this long standing history with who gets STIs, who holds STIs and what's it quote unquote, which means it doesn't really mean anything for them. Yeah. And when you often break things down, especially when you look at the stigma and you're given the reality of it, you're given the truth about it and its history, I think that helps me a lot personally with being able to articulate this to other people, mm -hmm. being able to say, okay, well, this was something that began this way. So your rational thought about who you are now as being associated with the history of where SCI started, it, it doesn't make sense because this was what was done then. Mm -hmm. And now what we're dealing with really are just the after effects of it. So we're talking about minorities, my marginalized communities of people who were set up mm -hmm. and now, you know, you make it out into the real world and you're you're out here and you're able to engage in sexual activity with partners and there's no there's no problem with that. There's not a problem until 
there's the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, I, now because of the association of this virus, this STI, now I'm all of those things that this has been associated with in the mm -hmm. past. And right now, we're in a place where most STIs are curable, mm -hmm. if not manageable today. When we're talking about herpes, like we look at how common herpes is, how treatable and manageable it is, but we still become so shameful and devastated mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. You know, just like you mentioned, you know, chickenpox is in the herpes family and we just got it as kids. As kids, uh, I remember my mom had me play with somebody who had chicken pox. Oh, them chicken pox parties. Over with. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's even like a form of, um, like if you look at the marginalized groups or lack of education and information, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. But, you know, we were exposed to it early, so we just got it out of the way. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if you have, and I'll correct this if I'm wrong, but when you become older, chicken pox is shingles yeah essentially so it was like our parents our family's way of protecting us so stigma shame i know that shame has been used as a tool in my family to protect mm -hmm. like i'm a 30 year old black man and if i go out and do something i ain't got no business doing the way to keep me from continuing to do it was through shaming mm -hmm. to my family if you do this thing, I'm going to come up to your school and embarrass you. So the way that shame was used then and applied there, and I'm sure a lot of people probably can't relate to this kind of thing growing up, but it doesn't serve us now, mm -hmm. especially where we are now where we have so much access to information. We can get the truth about things. So what's integral here is the difference between shame and guilt. Right. A lot of people you might hear like um, moms try and guilt their children into doing things like, well, you don't love me or you're uh, you going to go show your tail and I'm be embarrassed. Right. So it's like, I don't want my mama to feel bad. OK, I feel bad about it. And shame, guilt is like that pointing finger. Right. And then shame is typically internal. So shame is your own morality, your own beliefs about self and something going against those beliefs. So oftentimes with shame, it comes out as this negative idea about self, right? I am bad or I wasn't good enough or um, oftentimes my clients who have an STI diagnosis feel I am stupid, right? They're like, I'm stupid. How did I let this happen? Like, I know better. I have education. I know how to use condoms, blah, blah, blah. And when I tell them, I'm like, well, you know, some STIs are actually skin to skin. So unless you got some thigh condoms, like... I don't, I don't really know <laughs> how this would have been prevented or they don't have a test for HPV for people with penises. So when they say they got tested for everything, it's physically impossible for them to get tested for everything because they don't test them for HPV, right? So they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you didn't know. But that internal of I'm not good enough, I'm dirty, I'm bad, oftentimes it's where that shame starts to manifest mm -hmm. and that's when you start to see people close up and that's when their mental health starts to to take a shift often right that self-esteem uh in sexuality we don't just do stuff about sexual intercourse we're all about body esteem we're about of course health facts and reproduction but most people get that uh, other people don't get stuff about sex and power and how that actually works hand in hand so not just the rape incest pieces, right? Flirting is considered sex and power. 
right? That can be used as a manipulation to get something. But people with a positive status might feel like I have to stay with this person because this is the only person that will choose me. Right? Nobody else is going to accept me in the future. And somebody could be misusing that power. Well, who's going to want you? Because you have whatever. That's a misuse of power in relation to sex and sexuality. And then there's all sorts of those positive sex and sexuality power exchanges too, right? Well, I want to engage in the BDSM king community. What do I do about my status? Right? And I'm like, what are you doing where your status might matter? Let's talk about that. Like, what are these kinky behaviors? Um, are you doming? Are you sub? Like, what does that look like? And then we can talk about where that needs to go as far as disclosure. So sexuality encompasses all of that. It includes being able to be intimate, it includes the sensuality. So even though you have a status and maybe you have a sore this week, right, that's healing or hasn't healed yet and you still want to masturbate, can you get pleasure from the same surface orifice that has this sore on it? Or are you going to be completely consumed with, I don't want to touch anything there. I just want to clean like this part is not for pleasure right now because it's healing and injured and broken. What does that mean for us? Like, how do we go about that? What do you want? Do you want to completely be avoidant of this part of your body? Or do you want to have that pleasure from it when you want to have pleasure from it? So how do we accept it just as it is? So it's part of our work too. So really it's about helping people accept you know, what the facts are and mm -hmm. look at what their thoughts and beliefs are and then being able to construct new beliefs around right. the new narrative. Yep. And that's my job. So um, I would also say that's the model I've been working on. So I've been working on a black girl's guide to getting rid of sexual shame that talks about these negative cognitions, that talks about what's been hard about them for your life. What does that look like? Talks about like, where did you get these ideas from? And what do you want to believe in the future? And how do we get to the, what are small steps that you get to name? So it's really autonomous. It puts that person in charge of their life and decision making. So as a therapist, it's not my job. My job is there to tell you what to do exactly. It's to say, there are 17 options here. I will walk down any path you want to walk down with you. I will match my emotionality with yours. I will challenge you when things get hard or when I feel like you're not doing the work. But I will be there next to you to support you. I am your rah-rah cheerleader, go-getter, and also the you-need-to-check-yourself-before-you-wreck-yourself friend, right? Um, and not necessarily friend, quote-unquote. Therapists aren't your friends. You don't pay us to be your friends. But we're also that, like, I'm here for you. And I think therapy, especially with Black folks, and when you have a Black therapist, it looks a little bit different. It's not so cold and distant. It's not a lot of... I can't be myself and use the slang that I know. I can't access these different parts of myself, right? So one of my clients was like, ooh, girl, my hair. And I was like, girl, I know the humidity, right? Right? So we can have these real frank conversations. And it's just letting it all hang out without the what's respectability politics that go along with it. And I think that's really integral for Black folks in therapy. Now, while we're on Black folks in therapy... Well, we can start there. We can start with um, any stigmatization there may be against black people having therapy because I'll say, in my experience, I've come into contact with people who, in my family even, if you need a therapist, you're crazy. There are all these negative associations with people having to have a therapist. And here I am now, at 30 years old, finding out that sane social people mm -hmm. are navigating and looking at their mental health mm -hmm. from a complete different standpoint than what I was taught to look at. Mm -hmm. 
So are you seeing that there's even resistance in the black community with seeking a therapist? I see this generationally. Um, I'll go ahead and plug, I'm a millennial. Uh, people tend to not think I'm a millennial, but I'm a millennial. Um, and, and my partner is Gen X. And I have seen a shift with millennials specifically. And I'd say younger Gen Xers who are like, no, go see a therapist. Life out here is hard. I need somebody who's just for me. Um, older generations, not as much. I will say I'm starting to see women 40 to 65 return to therapy more so, but that kind of in-between bunch can be hard sometimes. And sometimes it's just not making enough time or maybe it's self-sacrifice equals goodness for them, which isn't true. Self-sacrifice never equals goodness. The more you sacrifice yourself does not make you a better mom, a better partner, a better worker, a better son, a better whatever. It's not true. But we tend to believe that because of capitalism. The more we're able to produce, the more we're able to earn, the more we're worth. Not true. So with therapy, you have to remember black folks and folks of color are centripetal. Big word for meaning we turn inward. So it's like, let me go talk to my cousin. Let me talk to my aunt. Let me talk to my grandma, pop, pop, whoever. They do not give the best advice sometimes. They don't. They don't. And also I find, let me talk to this couple who's been married at my church for 20 years. I'm like, do you want their marriage? Do you want their, like, if you do, sure. However, they may or may not be the best person to talk to, right? They also have a vested interest. And sometimes it's super helpful and sometimes it's not as helpful as people hope. But we're centripetal. We always turn inwards. We turn to the church. We turn to our elders. Yeah, we, we turn to biblical things. And sometimes we're left feeling unfulfilled. Sometimes you can feel really filled up from that and that's great. But we don't talk to strangers about our business, period. And it's been used as a weapon against us. You you know somebody in your family, some cousin, some distant uncle was diagnosed schizophrenic in right. the 60s or 70s or whatever it was. Just because medical systems have historically mistreated black folks. Everybody was diagnosed schizophrenic. Then everybody was bipolar. And people would come to me and be like, well, I was diagnosed bipolar because I get angry real fast. And I'm like, well, that's not what that means like that's not what bipolar is they're like well I do a 360 I'm like still not what bipolar is right bipolar is mania and depression having to have at least both of those episodes and being in one of those episodes right it's very it's not often that like they'll cycle through so quickly like in a day it's not really how it works but okay People have gotten these things, so they've learned not to trust doctors. And I just told you the history of like experimenting on black folks. So they're just like, why would I go see this person? They're gonna tell me I'm crazy. They're gonna try and put me on these pills. I don't want these medications. They don't know any natural things. And all that's not necessarily true, right? Especially when you find people who look like you, which we exist, we're out here. There's therapy for black girls, which is the whole directory of black folks who do therapy for other black folks. So we exist. And we're, uh, what, are, what am I going to call it? Somebody who is unbiased, right? We're somebody who's unbiased. And that's what's going to be really important in some decision makings and some being able to hear somebody out and continuing with that history piece, right? There's also been a history of black bodies being hypersexualized since we were brought to this country, right? So if you see Joy DeGruy, uh, wrote the post-traumatic slave syndrome 
book has a clip who talks about the song Amazing Grace and how the white guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace, right? Old Negro spiritual, every black church, I'm a recovering Baptist myself, um, talks about the fact that he's repenting because where they held the slave women, there was a secret door where you could go down and pick out slave girls to rape. And he's repenting in that song. He's saying, I'm sorry, save a wretch like me, right? Who knew that that was the background of this song that we sing so heartfoundly everywhere? We don't know. It's so much we don't know. So when we're talking about coming to therapy, there is a, a background of we don't talk about sex. And I'll even have grown people in my office talking about sex in whispers because it's not okay. Like, you just said penis. I'm like, yes. I just said penis. <laughs> you can say it out loud. Or I say vulva and people don't know what a vulva is. I just learned what a vulva was. Yay, good job. <laughs> yes, right? My two and a half year old talks about her vulva, right? It's really important that we know these languages because oftentimes our bodies are seen as sexual even when we're still children. And you might've seen that on social media, the, the Twitter post or somebody else posts about like, when was the first time somebody said something sexual to you? Mm. And you just see the comments of horror. It was like, I was eight, I was five, I was three. Yeah, cause black bodies are sexualized very, very early. So black girls specifically do go through puberty a little bit earlier, um, as early as eight, they can start to have their periods. And same with black boys. Black boys tend to go through puberty like maybe 11-ish versus 13-ish. And once we go through puberty, the society sees our world as adult bodies, even though we're still children. So it's like, oh, well, look at that butt on that girl or look at that boobs or look how, how strapping that young man is. And for some reason, that's now okay because they're these adult bodies. But no, like they're still kids. I think that our over our over sexualization and us being perceived as adults and sexualized at such a young age has a lot to do with how we interpret an STI diagnosis as well mm -hmm. because when we looked at that way I think um you know maybe there's some of our like we kind of form our value around that mm -hmm. and then we kind of use that sexuality and then we get a diagnosis. We use our sexuality for whatever reason we're using our sexuality as a tool for status, resources, whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden we get an SEI and like, I almost feel like there's a loss of identity there. Mm. So it's like now I don't have that status. So as a black athlete, you know, it's like a thing where you have a lot of sexual partners and it's like, damn, now I shouldn't or can't have a lot of sexual mm -hmm. partners or if I do I can't tell anybody I have to maintain the status and I don't know what the alternative would be for someone with a vulva um, I would imagine that it's like I don't know I can't get the status that I was hoping to attain anymore mm. so having that all of a sudden just knock you off to the side with mm -hmm. a positive diagnosis is there a connection between like I've lost my sexual power mm -hmm. and then feeling a loss of that with the SCI diagnosis. Right. So this thing that's been attributed to you from jump, whether it was true or not, right? And then you have this diagnosis, which can be invisible for most folks, right? Everybody's not checking your underwear to see what's going on there. And now there's this loss of this even hyper-sexualization 
Is that what you're asking me? I think that let's go with that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So yeah. And that goes back to that grief part, right? So it's, I've been sexy. I've felt sexy. Uh, I've able to attract people who want to sleep with me or who buy me drinks or who will, you know, let me move into their apartment based on this D, like whatever it is. And now I have this diagnosis and now I don't have that access anymore. This is no longer a tool I can use to survive or a tool I can use for pleasure or a tool I can use to build intimacy. Now I have to cut this part of myself off. Right. That is very much so part of that grief response of I'm losing myself in these ways too. So not only am I now a medical, I have to have medical help for whatever, whatever. It's now I'm dirty. Now I can't pass this on to anybody else. I have to be quote unquote responsible. And some of those, the least helpful things I've ever heard. I talked to somebody who had an HIV positive diagnosis and they were talking about how you're supposed to give them a list of names of people you've slept with in the last 10 years. I was like, 10 years? My chest, Jesus. Like, how? How am I supposed to do Like, I don't who, I don't know all the people if I, like, I don't know. Yeah. 10 years over time? And like, if you're a person who has one night stands, or if you're a person who has quick flings, like, okay, their Instagram name was strong arm two two seven. Like <laughs> like and now you gotta go back and notify them. We are not literally talking about strong, strong arm two two seven if you're listening. Yes, just an example. Uh thank you for the coverage. <laughs> right? So and I have to go back and they're like, that's one of the most unuseful things I've ever had to do because it's coming out again and again and again to people who are not significant in their lives. Coming out is hard enough. Right? But to have to do it 10, 15, 20 times from people you've only met one time, it creates so much ruckus. Like, oh my gosh. And so much disruption mm-hmm. that it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. With the hypersexualization of black bodies, do you think that the social status of your Cardi B, your Nicki Minaj, your Megan Thee Stallion is what black women are striving towards. And I feel like a lot of people may be striving towards getting that kind of status. And it's through like using that sexualization, the sexual tools and power mm-hmm. that we have. I'm not the best pop person. So like Nicki Minaj's and Cardi B's get that is because they're embracing their sexuality. They're saying like, I'm sexy, I know it, and what? And I'm still going to be a mogul. I'm still going to get this money. I'm still going to be able to walk around in this thong swimsuit and be the CEO of my company. Like, I'm not playing to your respectability politics. And that's outlandish. So could you imagine if somebody like Cardi B or some other famous person was like, yes, and I have herpes, and I still get the D, and I still do this, and what? Right? Yeah. People be like, oh my God, what do you mean? Because it hasn't been shut down yet. That stigma, it gets fed more so than it gets shut down. Like a person can have an STI and be successful. A person can have an STI and be sexy. A person can have an STI and be wanted sexually by others and have good, pleasurable, regular sex. All right. I love what you said about them owning their power, embracing your own sexuality, sexual power. What does the healing of sexual trauma look like for black people? In the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that sexual trauma itself is sexual trauma. And then an STI diagnosis can be sexual trauma. So can we start with 
the STI diagnosis in terms of what healing may look like. Mm -hmm. So in general, when we're talking about black people and Patricia Hill Collins is a theorist who came up with this idea that black women specifically are one of the most oppressed people because of the types of oppression that she experiences, right? And we'll talk about black men too. But black women, just because they're black women, experience racism, experience sexism, and experiences classism, right? So we make less money uh, than white men, than black men, typically, even though we have the same education. And oftentimes it's already been proven that we need one more degree more than our white male counterparts in order to get the same positions. We're women, so we're already treated less than, right? And then we're black, so we're treated less than. I will contend with you that that needs to be expanded. So I expanded her theory and I say that black women specifically will experience not only racism, sexism, and classism, but also sizism. So talking about our bodies and how they're only sexually appealing when they're 36, 24, 36, right? And there's fat phobia. If you're slightly thicker than a snicker, you're no longer wanted um, or you're too fat or you're too skinny. And growing up in the South, nothing but a dog wants a bone, right? It's like, okay, well, thanks for the body shaming. Um, there's also texturism. So how our hair grows out of our head has been discriminated against, right? So like we just had to like legally decriminalize being able to wear natural hair in workplaces that you can't be fired for wearing your afro. And that's or, not been a thing for anybody else. No, no. Or your locks. You, you haven't seen the person being discriminated against for being a redhead and having curls. Like, well, you can't work here with your red hair. Like that, that does, I don't know if that's ever happened, right? So there's textures, I mean, I got that from Dr. Um, Donna Oriobu. And then there's colorism. So we, we hear that light skin versus dark skin and who's more worthy and you get privilege and I don't get privilege, right? So just from existing, there's at least six types of oppression for black women, for black men, there's at least five types. And we haven't even talked about disabilities. We haven't talked about um, both invisible and visible. So if it's mental health, if it's physical, if it's an amputee, wheelchair, whatever it might be, um, medical. We haven't talked about LGBT status, right? So if they have a different type of sexual orientation, we haven't talked about if they're a marginalized religion. We haven't talked about if they're not from the United States and xenophobia all existing at one time on this one body and let's throw in an STI positive diagnosis. That all is traumatic. So you're not just carrying this small little piece, right? It all plays into this system that is consistently telling you, you don't measure up. You're not good enough. You have to fight. What, what is it? Twice as hard to get half as much. And now it's like, I'm fighting twice as hard to get half as much with one leg tied up too, right? Or without access to something that may have gotten me access before, without access to my sexuality because society tells me that people with my diagnosis aren't sexual anymore. Or I'm a danger now to society. I'm perpetuating the disease in some way. And they lose that part. So healing sexual trauma means that we have to A, recognize all of these systems in place and how they've played you over and over and over again and where they're popping up. Examine the forest. Uh-huh, exactly. So we're looking at the forest. We're looking at how these negative ideas have impacted you in this forest. What have you done? What have you held yourself back from? 
What have you not allowed yourself to do? What are those negative consequences that have popped up because of this belief? Now, do you want to change that or not? Do we examine where this came from for you? Is this yours? Did you did you make this up by yourself? Who told you this? Was it a preacher in a pulpit? Was it your parents? Was it your friends? It was like, uh, I heard they got blue waffles, right? And you're like, what? Answer the question. It was my grandpa. It was your grandpa. So yeah, so owning that and then externalizing that message, seeing where it's congruent, see what works for you, right? That's all part of my model, like decreasing that shame, and that's what that sexual trauma looks like. And then also normalizing you're not alone, like your community is super important because it's like, oh, it's not just me. A lot of people have felt this way. And sometimes we do feel isolated and alone because we don't share. We don't share out. We just keep it to ourselves. We have a running script in our head. Thank you for saying that because I come across a lot of black people. It's a little disheartening when someone reaches out and they're Mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm dealing with this. I'm alone. I'm the only person. I'm like, hey, you're not actually. Mm -hmm. They've taken whatever answers they needed from me and they're Mm -hmm. like, I just don't hear from them again. It's like, hey, I want to be able to connect y'all to this community but the shame the yeah guilt, yeah and the unwillingness or inability to look at the sexual trauma or the trauma itself and tra- tracing it back um the unwillingness to examine that mm-hmm. is what's really keeping them from being part of this community and being isolated mm-hmm. and i think it also has to do with what you said earlier about having to work twice as hard for half as much and it's just like one more thing stacked against us and right. i even heard this out loud from right someone. so um i don't know like what more can be done what more can i do to um get people to see hey this actually is isolating yourself isn't helpful mm-hmm. i don't know what i can do besides mm-hmm suggest and hope that they go to a therapist who can help them through that yeah yeah well one your presence is definitely helpful right because they had somewhere they have some platform they might secretly follow you or secretly lurk on your page that's important two you have to remember denial is a part of grief Mm -hmm. right not just a river in africa it's a part of grief so denying that this exists um, denying that this is going to have any impact or denying how this has to change how you navigate or communicate in relationships all a part of it and it's uh, coming to grips with wait my reality does change a little bit right or maybe it only changes once every you know two years or maybe i'll never have an outbreak or maybe i have an outbreak every month it just depends on the person but denial is something that is really really palpable it's like i don't have this this is why they um, put a stop to like the home hiv kits do you remember that Mm -hmm. so they used to want to give hiv kits um at like CVS's and Walgreens and things like that. So you could self-test at home. And I think the commercial was something like, before you get busy on a date, self-test. And it's like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. But the issue is everybody goes into testing expecting to come out negative. People don't think about the potentiality that they could be positive. They're like, oh, I know my test is gonna be negative. I'm just doing this to be cute, ha ha ha. Think about my health. Yada, yada. So I can have my clean papers. So I can show them to somebody else, right? But they don't think about the idea, like, what happens if I'm really positive? How does my life change? They don't think about that when they go to get tested. So they pulled it. They pulled having the HIV self-home test kit because they were worried about the positive results and if the positive results would end up in some type of self-harm or suicide, right? And that was really scary. They were like, oh, maybe, maybe not. 
maybe it might help if they had a person there who had support, who had resources, who could give them like, okay, this is really hard. I understand that. Let's get you in a support group with other people like you. Let's test your partner. Let's see if we need to have them on prep. Like, they found out that a community approach was way more supportive. Yeah. And so that would be for all STIs, all of them, right? So if you're a person who's had something that is manageable versus curable, then a community does help there. And maybe there's a level of anonymity. I don't know what's helpful. Maybe it's everybody kind of does a Zoom thing or an online webinar under some like fake IG account that you just created and you got one follower. Like whatever it is. There's a lot of that. Yeah. (laughs) All of these these resources for community you Mm -hmm. mentioned are available. Awesome. They're, They're out there. It's really just a matter of you being willing to put yourself out as comfortable as you are willing to do so. Mm-hmm. I guess after coming into awareness of our own sexuality, when we recognize how we've been let down by past generations and the system that we're a part of, what can we do for the future? Mm-hmm. So I think that's super important. And specifically with STIs, right? And, and sexuality in general. Uh, I try and I have two small children, like very small, two and 10 months. And I try and model body positivity with them. So we don't talk about diets and we don't talk about, ugh, I don't like my belly hang, right? In front of our kids and pretty much not in our house, even though I might not be satisfied with my body right now, the way it is, postpartum body. But I also want to model for my kids what it looks like to be accepting of the body that you have right now and getting joy and pleasure from it. I also want them to have a healthy view of intercourse one day. I want them to have pleasurable sex lives when they're ready. And I want them to be safe. And so for me, that means leading a sex positive parenting life. And same with my partner. I call him my lover. He's my husband. But my lover and I like very much try and ensure that our girls are surrounded by sex positivity. It means they see us be affectionate. It means we do consent to touch them. So I ask my two and a half year old, can I give you a kiss? And if she says no, then I respect that no, which is unheard of in Southern Baptist culture. But <laughs> Go give your uncle a hug and a kiss. Right. No, he's creepy. Right. And I say like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you for practicing your boundaries, right? And then she is working on learning how to ask me if I want a hug and a kiss and respecting my no. And sometimes she cries and that's okay. And we talk about being disappointed. And I think we can take that and we can model for other folks, right? We can stop. What was that whole, like the whole Usher thing where he might have had an STI and given it to somebody and everybody came out the woodworks. Like, what are we modeling for our youth? What are we modeling for people who might be born with sexually transmitted infections, right? Like HIV is something that's passed on. What, are we calling that child dirty? Are we calling that child all of these? Like imagine what that means. What about that kid who might have got gonorrhea from their mom? Or who might have had any type of thing from their mom? That's really important to, to know that you're setting up a standard for them too. And how do we be sex positive? We're not going to treat that child like a leper. Because we shouldn't treat adults like lepers either, right? And I think that's that's the main thing. It's being sex positive and that you still have a right to pleasure in your body no matter what it is going on with your body. You have a right to find pleasure in this instrument that you're walking around in the world in. 
And that's how we want to continue to be sex positive and be sex positive models. Dr. Lexi, I appreciate your time. I think we got a lot covered here. Um, more than I wanted to cover. I think I wrote down three things, <laughs> but they just they got so expansive. And I appreciate you really expanding my perspective, giving me language that I didn't have access to before. Um, how can people contact you? Yes. Um, so if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can follow me at Lex, L-E-X-X, sex, S-E-X, doc, like doctor, D-O-C. And I'm actually Lex Sex Doc across all media. So that is where you'll find my private practice, which is the Institute for Sexuality and Intimacy right here in St. Louis. It's where you'll find me on Twitter. I don't really tweet much. I'm trying to get better at it. And you'll find me on Instagram. So look me up, friend me, send me. A message I'm completely accessible I'm not gonna do a whole lot of free labor just FYI but <laughs> I will definitely answer emails accept requests and follows and all of those types of things I look forward to it and to connecting with folks thank you thank you